0: Hi Gains Gurus and welcome to TMGP, the Muscle Growth Podcast, Episode 2. I am your host, Roscoe, and today we are welcoming Dr. Milo Wolf onto the show. At the age of 14, Milo transitioned from soccer to a new passion, elevating his home workouts to the next level. Motivated to pursue physical fitness, he joined a gym and embarked on a journey into lifting weights. Nowadays, Dr. Wolfe has a PhD specializing in muscle hypertrophy and strength research. For over four years, Milo has been a guiding force helping individuals achieve their goals of gaining muscle, increasing strength, and achieving leanness. Drawing from his extensive background in both bodybuilding and powerlifting, Milo brings a wealth of knowledge and practical experience to his coaching, having not only trained but also competed in these disciplines. Given that brief glimpse into Dr. Wolf's remarkable background, let's jump right into the QA style show. Hi, Milo. Hello Roscoe. Is it is it Dr. Milo now? Or soon it, to be it, It's Dr. Milo Wolf now. Officially. Officially. Huge congratulations. Very well done. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. How long how long was that dissertation?
1: How long in terms of years taken to finish a PhD, in terms of length of the actual thesis? Yeah, have to finish the PhD. Sure. Well, it took me just under three years. I actually didn't do a master's. So, in the grand scheme of things, I was fortunate enough to finish when I was 23. Like, I'm 23 years old now. No way. Wow. Um, That's incredible. Thank you, wow. man. I appreciate it. Um, no, but yeah, it, it flew by. Like, it's like anything that takes a few years, I think, where initially, or anything a bit challenging, initially you think it's going to be harder and you're not sure you can do it. And then by the end of it, you're like, wow, it's flown by, really. So.
0: And it's done. And now you're Doctor Wolf.
1: I'm Doctor Wolf now, dude. Who does the family actually?
0: Oh, what? There's three doctors in your family. Oh, three PhD. That is correct. Yes, oh, third Yeah, very impressive. Very impressive. Who else in your family has a Thank PhD? You. Uh, my father and one of my brothers. Wow. How many? How many kids are you? Uh, there's four of us, all boys. So okay, okay. So you got that competitive gene going between each other.
1: Indeed, yeah. And given, I'm the youngest, I think that's amplified.
0: Okay, okay. No, I, I get you, the last in the, in the letter. I was wondering, um, was this PhD, was it on the effects of range of motion and uh, muscle hypertrophy and strength? That's
1: exactly the topic Is of the Is that people. the one? Uh, the the, the reason, I'll give some yeah. background. Go for it. Hey, the one that got me uh, in trouble with Paul Coyder, for example. Um, So the reason why I did this PhD for, to begin with, before I go into the results a little bit, is, back in 2020, I was working for resistance and I had a general interest in the stance on full range of motion and the evidence we had on full range of motion. I was finishing up my undergrad in sports science, and I was thinking about next steps. At that time, there had just been the release of a systematic review on the effects of range of motion during resistance training on hypertrophy and strength. And so, given that I was already applying for range of motion within my training... I my, my sort of, I guess my company that I was working for was generally pro for range of motion and kind of had a dog in that race, it felt like, a horse in that race rather. Um, and given that it was with the recent systematic review kind of showcasing that there wasn't that much data out yet, I thought, well, it looks like an area that could use some more evidence, right? We could use some more studies in order to have more robust conclusions about what range of motion really is best during lifting to get hypertrophy and strength. At the time, the systematic review basically concluded that a full range of motion, wherein you get a full stretch on each rep and you get a full peak squeeze, was better for hypertrophy than a partial range of motion. When you're talking about any exercise, you always have the choice of do you want to go f- through a full range of motion, so go through as much movement during that exercise as you can, Or do you want to adopt some sort of partial range of motion where you perform a little bit less than a full range of motion? And in the systematic review, especially in the lower body, full range of motion seemed better for hypertrophy, whereas in the upper body, there was a little bit less data and there was a little bit less clarity as a result. And so I was like, okay, if there's only six studies overall in this area for hypertrophy, then it might conceivably be something that requires more study.
0: And so I got started with a PhD and three years later, here we are. Huge congrats, and that's an amazing reason for doing a PhD. And um, what was your what was your full conclusion? I think I did I did read that um, partial range of motion in the length and position uh, actually induced better hypertrophy results than full range of motion. Is that is that correct?
1: That is correct. That is the long and short of it. Now let me give you some background. First, as I just mentioned, in a twenty twenty systematic review by Brad Schoenfeld and colleagues, they found that full range of motion was better for hypertrophy. Our meta-analysis on the topic, with a few more studies, found that actually, yes, full range of motion was better for hypertrophy than partial range of motion, when you simply dichotomized the two into full or partial range of motion. So it was generally in line with what a previous systematic review had shown. However, when you kind of looked at partial range of motion more closely, you can separate partial ranges of motion into different sort of categories depending on which muscle length you're performing a partial rep at. Specifically, because a full range of motion involves, as name implies, a full range of motion across a variety of muscle lengths, when you're talking about a small range of motion, you can kind of pick where you perform it. You can either perform it at shorter muscle lengths, right, when the muscle is more contracted or squeezed, like the top of a bicep curl, at longer muscle lengths, like, for example, the bottom half of a bicep curl, where the biceps are more lengthened or stretched, Kind of the same sensation you'd get when you're stretching your hamstrings out, that sort of position. And then you could also do some mid-range partials, or what people often refer to as constant tension reps, where they avoid both full peak contraction and a full stretch. Now, it's turned out that when you broke down the comparison of full range of motion into full range of motion versus partial range of motion at shorter muscle lengths, and partial range of motion at longer muscle lengths, you basically saw that the muscle length at which you perform these partials is really important. Specifically, when partials are performed at longer muscle lengths, you get more hypertrophy versus a full range of motion. And when these partials are performed at shorter muscle lengths, you get less hypertrophy than a full range of motion. So it seemed to dictate the relationship between range of motion and hypertrophy is muscle length. So essentially, on average, when you're training, at what length is your muscle being trained? So... This general principle was not just evident in the studies comparing lengthened and partials to four-inch of motion for hypertrophy, but also in the broader set of studies comparing more shortened training to more lengthened training. Specifically, altogether, there's about 25 studies in kind of three or four broad categories. Category one is studies looking at two groups, doing isometric contractions, where the muscle length doesn't change, it stays constant, right? Like just a hold essentially. Where one group would train at long muscle lengths, so isometrics at longer muscle lengths, and one group at shorter muscle lengths. Very consistently across these five studies, better hypertrophy with longer muscle length training. Then you had eight studies comparing partial repetitions at different muscle lengths. So either at short muscle lengths or long muscle lengths, doing just partial repetitions. So not even the full range of motion. And again, out of those eight studies, seven studies showed a benefit to long muscle length training, and one study showed no difference. And then finally, you have comparisons of both shortened partials and lengthened partials to full range of motion directly. And within these studies, a very consistently, lengthened training wins out again, where across five studies, one of which is unpublished on lengthened partials versus full range of motion, four of those studies showed a benefit to lengthened partials being better than full range of motion for hypertrophy, and one studies found no difference. So altogether, there has not been a study comparing full range of motion to lengthened partials where lengthened partials were worse for hypertrophy than full range of motion. So the way I see lengthened partials right now as compared to full range of motion for hypertrophy is that at the very worst, you're not missing out on any growth, but it's very likely that you'll get some additional growth by
0: incorporating them. Do you know by what percentage um, on average that kind of extra growth might be? Yes, so we ran some analyses that are essentially
1: exponentiated uh, log response ratios. Long story short, generally you can probably expect a greater growth of about five to ten percent relative to full range of motion.
0: Wow, that that's quite a significant amount. That's very um significant. Indeed. So, should we hop straight into some of the... Um, so, you've given us a little bit of um, background into yourself. Um, can we get in your journey into the world of uh, sports science? What got you into it originally and why, why you chose to study it?
1: For sure. So, what got me into sports science originally, back when I was about 14 or 15, I got into lifting weights. And after like a year or so of just doing some... Am I allowed to swear? Uh, sorry? Am I allowed to swear? Go for it. Go for it. <laughs> Absolutely. After a year or so of just doing some dumb shit when I first got started, um, I slowly got more into reading the science behind it. I remember reading things like Strong by Science or Strength Theory at the time, as it was known. You now work at Stronger mother, That is correct. You yes, okay. yeah, now work at Stronger okay. by Science, which is wow, a, a, a cool. full circle moment. That's very cool. Um, man. But yeah, basically started reading into the science a little bit more behind it. Initially, just to further my own results a little bit, I think, and then gradually started coaching people and saw reading into the science as a means to lead to greater practical results, which is kind of a cool application of evidence. And so when I was 17, I had to decide, all right, well, what do I want to do with my higher education pathway? I thought the one thing that I seem to have nearly um, boundless interest in is sports science and lifting weights. And the academic version of that would be sports science. And so I went to the UK, did my undergrad in sports science, and then three years ago, started my PhD in sports science. And that's kind of what led me here. On the way, I did compete in powerlifting, and I did compete in natural waterboarding as well. So I've got some experience in a variety of sort of strength and physique sports. But that's kind of my background as far as both academia and my training goes, I guess.
0: That's quite a background. Um, I was wondering, sorry,
1: where are you from? Sure. So my parents are originally Austrian, but I was born in Belgium, raised in Belgium, and when I was seventeen, moved to the UK to study.
0: Wow, that that's really cool. Lots of lots of traveling. How was it being away from home? Was it all right?
1: Well, I, I'll say the first few months of being at university were pretty rough. I think, like, okay. especially I was seventeen, so I was relatively young. But I think for most people, the first few months can be quite a reality change.
0: Check, yeah, check. You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, I completely get you. Um. Uh, In terms of the fundamentals of hypertrophy, what is your definition and uh, how does it differ from strength or other training? Sure. So
1: for hypertrophy, we're generally talking about an increase in muscle size, right? That could be constituted of like a variety of things from sarcoplasmic hypertrophy, potentially that's not as well established as some people think, to simple myofibrillar hypertrophy, that's a lot more well established than people think. Essentially mouthabal hypertrophy refers to an increase in the contractile elements of muscle fibers and a concomitant increase in, for example, sarcoplasm. Um, generally, we measure hypertrophy in a variety of ways from ultrasounds to MRIs to CT not CT scans, sorry, to um Texas scans, and a lot of other methods. As regards the mechanisms that actually induce hypertrophy, it seems like the main one that's been most substantiated is mechanical tension. So essentially within your muscle fibers, you have a variety of sensing proteins that when you apply tension to the muscle, whether that's active tension, like when you're actually producing force to lift the weight, for example, that's called active tension, or when your muscles are exposed to passive tension, which is a type of tension that occurs when muscle length is increased past resting length, as, for example, would be the case during length and partials, when these proteins within your muscle sense these things, this tension, they then initiate the hypertrophy response, which happens via mTOR, typically, in part. Um, And so that's, broadly speaking, how hypertrophy occurs, but there are other potential smaller mechanisms that are less well-substantiated. I think the most meaningful one and the better substantiated one would be the presence of metabolites. For example, the presence of lactate in and around muscle has been shown to confer potential hypertrophy even in the absence of mechanical tension. And other potential mechanisms that are a bit less likely include things like muscle damage, where it's a bit less clear. Same thing for muscle hypoxia, where it's also less clear whether it plays a role. But broadly speaking, tension is the main one, with metabolites potentially playing a smaller, but likely still meaningful role in some regard.
0: Wow, that's very thorough. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Um, what role does nutrition play in supporting muscle hypertrophy? Sorry, could you repeat your question? Sorry, yes. Um, is it, The line's a little bit bad, sorry. Um, what role does nutrition play in supporting hypertrophy?
1: Sure. So nutrition should ty- typically be viewed, and I'll be borrowing some language that I think is just common in sports science, but I think maybe I've heard it from Eric Helms, or maybe I've heard it from lecturers in my undergrad days. But nutrition is generally viewed as being permissive of training adaptations in resistance training versus being something that initiates them, right? So just because, for example, you eat a lot of protein without lifting weights doesn't mean you're going to grow muscle. Absolutely. Essentially, lifting weights or resistance training is the initial stimulus. It's kind of like the switch you have to flick or the dial you have to turn in order to even initiate the process of muscle growth. Then, depending on how favorable a variety of conditions are, like for example your nutrition, your stress, your sleep, etc., that will then dictate how much of a muscle growth response you see. In the case of nutrition, it comes down to a few main things. One is protein intake. An adequate protein intake of at least 1.6 grams of protein, kilogram of body weight, is going to be beneficial in optimizing the muscle hypertrophy response. Likewise, calorie status can play a role where it seems like at least being at maintenance or in a slight surplus is going to be required to get a solid hypertrophy response and ideally optimize the hypertrophy response. So a surplus of a couple hundred calories, for example, so a few hundred calories above your maintenance calories is typically going to be sufficient to optimize muscle hypertrophy. As far as nutrition goes, those are the main things. There are smaller factors, like for example, protein distribution, just making sure you get some protein in at a variety of points throughout your day, ideally three or four times a day with protein per meal being around 0.3 to 0.4 grams per meal, right, per kilogram of body weight, apologies. So if you weigh 100 kilograms, for example, that would be 30 to 40 grams of protein per meal. Generally, those few things will go a long way towards nutrition being permissive and actually optimizing your hypertrophy.
0: Uh, that, that's awesome, man. I totally agree with you, what you said about the protein not necessarily being the, the stimulus for growth, but being what you need to recover and then to grow. That's a good point. Exactly. Um, For training principles, what would you say is the most effective training principle for muscle growth?
1: That's a good question. I think, hmm, give me a moment to... Absolutely. I think it may just be proximity to failure. I was going, I was going to suggest that. Those, yeah. yeah. hey, I think those, I'm not sure if they're principles as much as they're variables. Sure. Because sure, principles, sorry. typically people refer to specificity, progressive overload, etc. Sure. Um... If I had to mention a principle, I would probably say progressive overload as being the main one, because we do know that generally to see your best hypertrophy from a given set, it needs to be adequately challenging. Absolutely. Because when you start lifting, for example, you quickly become better. If you don't match the intensity or the challenge or the difficulty of each set to your capacity, You're not going to be making your ideal muscle growth. As far as variables go, I think, as I mentioned, volume and relative intensity, or how close to failure do you take a set, both seem to be the most influential at how much hypertrophy you get. Other variables, like frequency, the exact repetition range, etc., are also more so permissive, right? Where you might see slightly worse gains if you don't have them perfectly in check, but you will still see gains because the main thing is having a decent amount of volume in place and a decent amount of relative intensity.
0: Absolutely. And could you share some advanced training techniques that could help uh, break through plateaus? Absolutely.
1: So I think the main one, whenever someone refers to a plateau, is first just make sure you're identifying a plateau properly. When you've been training for a few years, rate of progress is gonna slow down. Just make sure you're actually dealing with a plateau and not just a natural slowing of progress. Sure. That being said, if you've identified that you've stagnated, I think the bulk of the research suggests that the one thing you can do to really break through that plateau would probably be to do more volume, provided you can recover. right? If you look at a lot of research around non-responders in hypertrophy training and a lot of the research on volume, more broadly speaking, it seems like simply increasing volume from where you are to a little bit higher it's probably going to be for hypertrophy the main thing you can do to enhance your results if you're currently stagnating. A lot of people can get away with more than they think, and I think some people that don't see progress may simply not be doing enough volume and or not enough, not close enough to failure.
0: Yeah, not training hard enough, as Greg Deset would say. Exactly. Mm-hmm. How how important is recovery in in hypertrophy? I'm sure it's very important, but what what strategies can can aid your recovery? Sure.
1: So, as we as recovery, there's a few big things you can and should be doing, and then there's some recovery modalities that may have a role every now and then, but can often come at some sort of cost. The main ones that really don't come at any major cost, but do improve your recovery quite substantially, are maximizing your sleep in bed, or so, sorry, your time in bed rather, obviously your sleep as well as a consequence, but the best, the most documented and evidence-based recommendation for improving your sleep, typically, provided you're not dealing with insomnia or anything, is simply to do something called sleep extension, which is when you spend an additional hour or two in bed a night in order to get a greater quantity of sleep. And that seems to be the best way to improve your sleep when things like sleep hygiene are already in place and that sort of stuff. And sleep is very consistently associated with better performance cognitively and physically, and thus, would reasonably be expected to also lead to greater hypertrophy in the long term if you sleep well as opposed to poorly. So sleep's a huge one. Another one is stress. Stress can be difficult to manage in some regards, but there are tools like, for example, mindfulness meditation, and generally just stress management, like not overworking yourself, that can be helpful. But keeping stress, not necessarily at a minimum, but at a reasonably low level is good right? If you're constantly finding yourself so stressed out, for example, that it impacts your sleep or that you're finding it difficult to get sessions in or that you're finding that your hunger is disturbed, etc., then there's a good chance that your levels of stress are interfering with your muscle growth. Then besides stress and sleep, the main things for recovery are kind of taken care of. And so we're down to like secondary recovery modalities that have some trade-offs. For example, one of the, when you compare different modalities, different strategies, One of the ones that seems more efficacious is a sports massage, but it seems as though the issue with that, even though it does help with recovery overall, is that it's relatively expensive, and thus might not be something you can use all the time. Then there's other recovery modalities, like for example, the sauna or a cold bath, where because you're enhancing recovery, but you're also typically messing with the signaling pathways for hypertrophy, you're typically getting greater recovery but the expense of getting quite as much muscle growth. And so, for example, when you look at the meta-analysis on cold water immersion after training, you see that people grow less muscle across multiple studies when they immerse themselves in cold water after training as opposed to just chilling out instead. And therefore, some of these recovery modalities can be useful in certain contexts, but honestly, sleep and stress management are the main thing.
0: Absolutely, and I see a lot of... uh influences uh, on the whole cold water immersion and saying it's the best thing for uh for hypertrophy and things and and it's just not it's absolutely been proven now to to not be good for for growing muscle at least but would you say there is some benefit to it for other factors not muscle growth but um, i don't know maybe it healing other parts of the body
1: yeah so it's interesting generally i'm As a sports scientist much more familiar with the evidence around cold water immersion and hypertrophy and resistance to recovery than i am for other benefits uh from what i gather and this is really not my expertise it has substantial benefits for recovery but again at the expense of hypertrophy and it may or may not have some benefits for other stuff like potentially for some mental health stuff potentially for overall health long term and that sort of stuff but to be honest, they seem like relatively secondary effects, especially when you compare them to, like, if you compare it to the health effects of taking ice baths versus the health effects of simply being more physically active, the physically, physical activity is going to play a much larger role in overall health
0: than that. Absolutely. No, I saw that Um, being physically active is one of the best things, especially in elderly people, to prevent aging and slow, well, slow it down, I guess, in comparison to people that don't exercise. <laughs>
1: Um, 100%. Yeah. Activity is the one thing that can help with longevity and with quality of life quite substantially, maybe even more so than weight management, aka keeping your weight in a healthy range
0: as opposed to being overweight or obese. Sorry about the delay. Um, What what are some signs of overtraining and how can individuals avoid it?
1: Yeah. So the primary way we define overtraining syndrome in sports science, to my knowledge, is essentially whether or not performance is returning to baseline between bouts of exercising, right? And if there's a consistent and marked decline in your performance from one week to the next, and it's continuously dropping and dropping, there's a good chance that you're training so much that your body cannot recover and you're becoming overtrained. If you're training stress is exceeding recovery for only a few days or like a week or two at a time that can result in something called overreaching, which is essentially a much milder version of overtraining. And that can sometimes be used within sports science to great effect, where, for example, powerlifters might functionally overreach because there's a purpose, so it's called functional, in order to have greater performance at a powerlifting meet. To what extent this actually happens is relatively unclear as of yet, but there is such a thing. But when we're talking about a marked decline in performance week to week for weeks on end, and typically other perturbations like emotional perturbations, like excessive soreness, like fatigue, like sleep perturbations, like appetite perturbations, all of these things, in addition to a marked decline in performance week to week, suggest that you might be overtraining. Now, I think this is actually quite rare within resistance training. It occurs a little bit more readily in other sports but it's worth keeping in mind. Okay.
0: Now, it's it's interesting. Why do you think it happens not as much in resistance training as much as other other training? And which which ones do you, do you mean in particular?
1: Yeah. So generally sports where you have a higher overall workload and by that, I mean volume typically of exercise and volume can be simply defined as energy expenditure, for example. Something like, for example, triathlon, I believe, has higher yeah. rates of overtraining. Simply by, by virtue of moving around a lot and having yeah. a variety of disciplines involved, they can often be trading twenty, thirty hours a week versus like it's yeah. relatively unheard of for someone to train for more than ten, fifteen hours a week in the gym. So and
0: unless you uh, so I forget his name but the guy did the eight hour arm workout. Um it's a bit of a Rich um, Piana, my yes, guy. Yeah, yeah. So indeed. you just do two two and a bit of those and then then you're twenty hours, but hopefully most people aren't doing that. Indeed. Are they um indeed Are there specific health markers that athletes and bodybuilders should monitor regularly? Yeah. So I think,
1: honestly, if I had to name one, and this is going to be rarely an issue when you're talking about an athletic population and bodybuilders who are generally in reasonable health. But I think if you're natural, the one health marker that might be worth keeping track of, especially if you don't have any prior concerns about health, like you don't have any conditions that predispose you to anything, the one thing I would probably keep Track of the most is simply your waist circumference. We have pretty compelling data, especially like in men and females, that um your waist circumference to height ratio is pretty predictive of longevity, health outcomes, etc. And so, if you keep track of your waist circumference, and for example, it's typically below half of your height, then typically for health, you're relatively in the clear. Things like BMI, for example, like body mass index, have a lot more limitations when it comes to health because if you're someone who lifts, especially, you can have a relatively higher BMI and still be in excellent health. And so, even though your BMI might be overweight or even obese, yeah, you might still be in excellent health. And then you it might could have a you need model. to lose weight when you don't. Exactly. BMI, waist conference. Days, exactly. Was waist conference, you're talking about a part of the body that does have hypertrophy a little bit, but for the most part, it is impacted by fat, adipose tissue, and specifically yes. visceral yeah. adipose tissue with an ectopic adipose tissue, both of which are associated with meaningfully worse health. And so I think honestly, like for health, if I had to give one measurement, that would be it. If you're someone who's potentially on steroids and I'm not super qualified to speak on this, I would say blood tests are probably a good idea. I think if you have prior health concerns, or if you've had a flag in the past for stuff, you might want to take your blood pressure relatively consistently and maybe take some blood tests like every every year perhaps. But I think waist circumference for most people
0: is the one thing people are looking. Absolutely. I think blood tests, even for people that aren't necessarily on, on steroids, should people should try and do blood tests every now and again, just in case they have something wrong with them that they otherwise wouldn't know about.
1: For sure. I think it, it can be less frequent for people who don't have any prior reasons to,
0: but it certainly doesn't hurt to do it. Yeah, unless you're afraid of needles. <sighs> Indeed, in that case, maybe not. Yeah. Um what are some common injuries associated with uh resistance training and how can they be prevented? I'm sure you're going to say something about probably overtraining or something along those lines. Yeah,
1: so generally training load management is a big thing. So, you know, try to avoid overtraining. The other thing is there it's difficult with injuries because First of all, there's a big disconnect between injuries and pain, where you can have pain without injury and injury without pain. So I'm not sure exactly what you mean by injury. I'm going to assume you mean pain, right? Yes. Yeah. And if you mean pain then monitoring symptoms and making modifications to training where appropriate can be good. I think a good, um, and by modifications I mean for example, let's say movement really consistently causes high levels of pain for you. Then you probably want to modify it in some regard or substitute it for something else that accomplishes the same thing without causing that pain for you. So essentially a symptoms-based approach. Likewise, I think that Generally, having the right prior beliefs or cultivating an attitude of resilience versus frailness when it comes to activity is good. Basically, the way you perceive your body and exercise can impact how much pain you feel. And so, if we create a lot of nocebo's, for example, around exercise or certain movements or certain positions, like for example, the deadlift and spinal flexion in the deadlift, that's where issues can arise. So that's what I would generally say.
0: Um. Thank you very much. Uh, can you share any personal experiences with overcoming injuries in your career and what tips would you give uh, for approaching rehabilitation?
1: Yeah. So I think my worst injury to date has comfortably been my left shoulder. When COVID first started and lockdown happened, I ordered some gym equipment, home gym. It arrived after a couple of months. We got overeager. We put together the squat stands. Yeah. I started training on them a couple of sessions in. I was doing some incline bench press in our garden without any spotters. And I had maybe 185 to 220 on there, somewhere like that. And um, I went to re-rack the weight. So I was relatively close to failure and the squat stand flipped. And so all of a sudden I was without spotters and I had to find a way to dispose of the barbell. And as it came crushing down on me, I essentially tried to throw it forwards, and I went through it forwards to get it off of me and not be crushed. I felt my left shoulder just go and be very big, essentially. And so, for about a year, if not a bit more, and it's recurring to an extent. Um, I had a lot of pain, which prevented me from really training my upper body all that well. And basically, the way I trained around it was make modifications to training to make it less painful, right, and to still get a training effect in or a training stimulus while managing pain symptoms essentially so in my case that was doing higher rep walk like doing 15 or 20 reps at least per set for the upper body still close to failure but really reducing that load taking in more machine-based exercises because it seemed to be like in my general shoulder area and machine-based exercises seem to be better for it um that can really vary person to person by the way so definitely listen to your symptoms a little bit um And then gradually, as pain allowed, right, like if my pain was below a 4 out of 10 on a given exercise, I would gradually inch closer and closer to my normal training again. And now it's gotten to the point where I don't need to avoid anything anymore because of pain. So I still have some pain every now and then, like every few months, but it's very manageable. And that's generally been the thing of like gradual exposure, gradual reacclimation to previous training stressors as symptoms allow.
0: That's an excellent strategy, and, and thank you so much. And I'm so glad that um, you're feeling a lot better and you're able to get back to original capacity. For sure. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. How um, In terms of the mental aspect of training, uh, how does the mental aspect of training play into achieving your hypertrophy goals? Sure.
1: So as far as the mental aspect of training goes, uh, do you mean like sort of the effect of training on mental health? Do you mean like sort of what mental strategies I might use to enhance training?
0: So I guess I guess that your mental your mental health could could be part of it, but also kind of when you're not feeling like training, you're kind of mentally fatigued. Overcoming those kinds of uh, factors. Sure.
1: So with regards to feeling mentally fatigued and those sort of factors, I think that. When you're talking about encouraging any sort of behavior, ideally, and again, not in my area of expertise, but ideally from my understanding, you would want to create a, an environment that facilitates the behavior as much as possible, and you would want to make the behavior as much of a habit as possible. So in my case, that means, for example, training more frequently rather than less frequently to make it more of a habit, facilitating the act of going to the gym, for example, by having my gym stuff ready by the door so I don't need to think a lot, around yeah. a lot of decision fatigue or a lot of friction when engaging with that behavior. And so even on days where I'm a little bit less motivated, just by having that ease of initiating that behavior of going to train, that simply makes it easier. I will say I think it's a virtuous cycle in which by training, my mental health improves and my sort of vigor and other like vigor, energy, etc. improve on a day to day basis, which then again makes it more likely for me to train. And that's again relatively well documented in research that exercising improves mood states overall as measured for example by the profile of mood state scale
0: no absolutely and you make a really good point about the reducing friction and i think that's something that a lot of people don't realize how big of an impact it can have i um take my gym stuff to work and it's just super easy to get dressed at work and go straight from work to gym and it's, it's seamless whereas i used to come home first then get changed then go i don't i don't have a problem yeah. with robot motivation but it's a lot easier now literally going straight from from work and that kind of thing and preparing sure for, putting, I, your, putting your stuff out I go to work in my gym clothes and then just put a, a button up shirt over that and then yeah, you know, you're ready to go kind of like Clark Kent exactly. just not as big yet but we'll, we'll get there hey, Yes, yeah. not, quite. We'll, not there. quite we'll get there yeah we will we will 100% um Could you share a particularly uh, i guess a particularly challenging or inspiring experience from your own training or coaching career i guess your shoulder is is one thing but something else maybe or
1: um i think maybe the thing that people would find most inspiring or challenging was probably preparing for a bodybuilding show while also doing my phd full-time while also doing coaching full-time so for context, I, I was coaching about forty or fifty clients. I was doing. Sorry, marketing. how many? I had some other projects going on.
0: Um, a forty or fifty. That's a lot of clients. That's a lot of clients. Wow. And doing PhD and it's online. Writing. It's online for, for context. Oh, okay, it's, okay. Yeah,
1: it's it's online for that stuff. So it's a bit different than in person would be rough, indeed. Um, yeah. but I think that like basically, if you're motivated and if you can set up your systems properly, you can do a lot more than people might think and it can take you to further than you might have thought previously so it's i think generally that experience of having to juggle those few things is probably the i don't
0: know maybe the most motivational or inspiring thing that i've done i mean that, that that's that's amazing like doing so much and juggling all of that you could get a job at any circus or the professional juggler i'm sure but hey so thank you thank you there's another thing you can add to the cv um can you talk about any turning points or aha moments in your journey to becoming an expert in in hypertrophy and, and health?
1: Good question. I think one of the main turning points was when I started the PhD, when I decided to take it a bit further. Wow. In general, when you decide, okay, I'm going to invest in education or, or something.
0: like Academia.
1: Another one would be in the first year of my, indeed, in the first year of my undergrad, for example, I bought, even though I wasn't particularly... Uh, wealthy at the time. First year of undergrad when I was 17, I purchased lifetime access to mass at the time. So the monthly applications in sports science research review and like just those decisions, those turning points where you're like, okay, I'm going to invest in education or I'm going to dedicate myself to spending a bit more time learning. I think those are the ones that really in any field make you go from a hobbyist more so than to
0: someone that might know a bit more. And and you studied it, so you did definitely by default a bit more, yeah, yeah 100%. Now, are you familiar with the the Gains Guru's uh, hypertrophy research blueprint? Um, did you get a chance to look at it by any chance?
1: Yeah, so I took a very quick glance at it. It basically seems to be summarizing most of the topics um, within lifting and giving some idea of the state of evidence there, correct?
0: Yes, exactly. that's exactly it, absolutely. Do you have yeah, any? Yeah, I mean, it, it looked like a decent resource. Okay. Awesome. Do you have any... Additional? No, I shouldn't say like... Um, sorry, go for it. No, sorry. The line, it's it's just uh, taking time for, for the line to go, go through. I wanted your uh, comments, advice, anything.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it, it looks pretty good. I think for it to be like generally with spreadsheets, you have the concern of usability. Like websites and apps are typically designed to be as user-friendly as possible. I think Absolutely. If um, if the information seems decent, I think if it was more user friendly, that would be um a really accessible resource.
0: That that's exactly that. That's a great point to make. So the whole reason for it being in Excel is just it's in that um data gathering phase, and um, and so we're still we're going to make it much more accessible and user friendly once we have kind of a more full um blueprint.
1: Awesome. Sounds good, man.
0: Thanks. Do you have any questions or specific uh, answers to questions that that you'd like to just just share in general?
1: Um, no, and I think we've done a pretty good
0: job of covering a lot of topics here. No, we've think, done uh, we've done a really a really really good job. I have some uh, audience questions um, that some people have have asked on various socials. Can I can I read them to you? Hit me. Go for it. Um, the first one is from a, a female. And she said, how can I lean out and gain muscle without getting too bulky as someone who struggles with losing weight and is already eating a reduced, in a, in a restricted calori- caloric diet and is training? Yeah. I mean, look, if you're struggling to lose weight
1: um, and you don't want to gain too much muscle, aka become too bulky, a really simple approach might be to stay in maintenance. Now, this will be predominantly helpful if you're like, somewhat close to your target weight or target look, right? Like, I think if you're within, especially if you haven't been training for very long, if you're within about 5 or 10 percent of your target weight, then a reasonable approach might just be to stay in maintenance. And the research we have suggests that you'll still gain some muscle. It'll be a little bit slower than usual, and so you'll kind of avoid that bulked-up look, but you'll also be able to circumvent the issue of finding it difficult to lose weight. So I think that's probably the best approach. Continue lifting, probably... Two to four times a week, ideally, for hypertrophy, and go from there. Awesome, thanks.
0: Um, this one's from a male. How can I put on size if I'm already eating a lot and training in the gym with a fast metabolism? I I seem to get this question a lot from a lot of a lot of men, in particular.
1: Yeah, I mean, the long story short is either eat more or move less. Now, yeah. from a health perspective, you'd be better off eating yeah. more because movement is probably really? good for health. Oh, sorry, I sorry, mean, you said moving these, sorry, I, mean, I know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so moving more is good for health. And so I would really try and keep activity on the higher end of us being equal. And as far as getting more calories in, so really when we talk about eating more, we talking about getting a greater amount of calories in. There's a lot of calorie dense foods out there. Um, having some more processed calorie dense foods in your diet is not going to kill your health. In fact, as long as you still have a core of say 60 to 80% of your diet coming from or calories coming from Relatively unprocessed foods, like whole grains, fruits, vegetables, lean meats, etc. As long as most of your diet is composed of those food groups, you can absolutely have some more processed foods that are calorie dense, like for example some crisps, what have you, right? That are more calorie dense, that are easier to eat, that allow you to get more calories in, and thus allow you to gain weight. I think that's
0: absolutely fine, as long as you still maintain, for health, a core of the main food groups. Absolutely. And then the last question from the audience, um, what's your take on recovery and hydration? This one's coming from uh a bodybuilder as well as a bodybuilding slash lifestyle coach male as well. Oh, true. So
1: recovery, we kinda of covered that a little bit earlier. Yeah. Sleep management and stress management are gonna be the two main things. Uh additional strategies like massage can be helpful, especially if you can get it for cheap or for free if you know someone who does it. Um Other strategies will have less applicability, like, for example, sauna or cold water immersion or ice baths. Those can be helpful when you really just train too hard and need to recover, even at the expense of hypertrophy. Let's say you're cripplingly sore. But I think most of the time you're better off just optimizing your sleep, spending plenty of time in bed, getting good sleep hygiene, like making sure your bedroom is cold and not very noisy and dark and that sort of stuff that's going to be your main thing for hydration for bodybuilding specifically you shouldn't need to worry too much about hydration outside of the context of potentially peaking for a show when you're enhanced especially when you're natural probably not a huge deal either when it comes to hydration the few situations in which it might be more of a challenge or one when you're exercising or just being in very high temperatures, two when you're at very low temperatures, and three when you're at altitude. All three of these conditions kind of mess with your perception of thirst, with how fast your body loses water and stuff, which just raises the need for better hydration. Hydration so should essentially be as consistent as possible across time. If you drink a lot of water at once and then don't drink for six hours, your body will release more of that water compared to if you had it Pretty consistently across time, so just small sips. Additionally, salt intake can be very helpful. Generally, the more salt you have in your food, with your water, so in a drink like Gatorade, for example, the more your body will retain the water and the fluid that you're consuming, as opposed to just excreting it again. So generally those are the things, but outside of these extreme circumstances, just drink to thirst and provided your urine for example is a relatively relatively clear yellow or entirely clear in all likelihood you don't need to worry about hydration any more than
0: that uh interesting one about the the gatorade thanks thanks for your response um you'd say gatorade over prime i'm sure uh yes indeed yeah, yeah well done. i would thought, thought you might okay we're coming up to a close here um if you were traveling on a spaceship to Mars and wanted to maintain your muscle size, what 10 exercises or pieces of equipment would you choose to take with you? Uh, it can be any machine or exercise, but you have limited space. Gotcha. So a barbell. I'm not sure if that counts as one piece, but
1: more will is one piece. Sure. Some plates, a power rack, an adjustable bench. So that's four things now. A Smith machine, some dumbbells. That's six, I guess um a dual cable stack adjustable so that you can pull a variety of exercises and i mean to be honest the last three are very very optional like i think with that you can train most things i would probably say a seated leg curl a let's see a seated leg curl probably probably a leg press and then finally um i don't know like maybe a cable bar or benching specifically, that might be the best use of ten pieces of equipment, I'd say, and it'd be relatively space yeah. conscious, I think,
0: for sure. No, Put it you, intended, you, by the way, you yeah, I, I give the very clever. No, you absolutely nailed the question, and I'm really sorry, I, I clearly didn't word it um uh, in the best way. If you had to just choose rather ten exercises to maintain your full body competi- um, composition, what what would you choose? Oh my God, the, okay. the leg uh, probably some kind of bench press so, so exercises gotcha okay um, yes yeah, sorry i would say a smith machine squat yeah, yeah. A smith machine squat
1: a deficit rdl a seated light curl a calf raise a reverse curly curl so that's five exercises yeah then i would say an incline dumbbell press a lat pull down a barbell row to mm-hmm. um Did a maybe something for shoulders Probably a camber bar flat, yeah, bar flat bench press, and then a cable ladder raise. I think that would
0: be, Brilliant. Cool. that would keep you keep you solid in space. I think that covers things pretty well. That that sounds like a good. That Um.
1: Although, then again, with hey, if going to space, by the way, um, yeah, yeah, this stuff really no, not, it doesn't matter. I need more plates because gravity is different. Exactly.
0: So you exactly. Know, maybe I'd yeah, maybe I like you bring bands. It's you know, it's if it, yeah. if this was real, I think this would be. Cool. It's a it's a whole nother ball game. They they actually have to use I think pneumatics or something to to do it. Um, who are your favorite researchers in in your field besides yourself or yourself? You can say I guess.
1: Um, oh wow, well, just me, bro. That's it. No, I'll find that. Um, I would say hey, that's it. Uh, I would say like three, probably, three or four. Um, I think there's a lot of. Re- Upfront, I think there's a lot of research groups I really value within the field. Like, for example, Cassiano and colleagues, like Nunes and colleagues. Like, there's a lot of research groups I value because they're putting out research in a variety of areas and they're very cool and they're really like the, the the beating heart of the field. I think. But when it comes to favorite individual researchers, I think that um, my supervisor James Steele is very solid methodologically. I think Brad Schoenfeld, Professor Brad Schoenfeld rather, is uh, very solid. I think, for example, um, Paul Swinton is very solid, who's been doing a lot more research recently as far as the analysis component of studies goes.
0: So I think those three would probably be my favourite. Those, those are top researchers and I, I'm sure I've read many multiple of their their papers as well. Definitely Brad and um, Professor Schoenfeld. Um, for favorite influencers in the bodybuilding world, I know influences is a different term, but who would you who would you say besides yourself again? But you can put yourself because obviously put yourself is important. Uh, well,
1: hey man, I'm I'm basically an influencer now. I guess the PhD doesn't count. Um so I would say honestly, I have a soft spot for Eric Bugenhagen, just in terms of being a bit ridiculous and absurd and all that. Um I don't know, I, I, I'm gonna be honest with you, like, it's been an yeah, since I really watched anyone. Uh, Omar Isof, actually, Omar Isof, shout out, Omar Isof. Like, ma- Omar Isof, even to this day, like, I'm actually good friends with him now, but, um, I value Omar Isof Im- immensely. I guess if we're talking about uh, people that aren't strictly researchers and are more so well-known on social media without taking part in much primary research, maybe Greg Knuckles, for example, um... I think it's very solid, and I guess to go back to the favorite researchers part as well, like Eric Helms, for example, is very solid. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, that would be my answer: Eric Bougundagen, Omar Isouf, and uh, Greg Knuckles, for example, very solid as far as influencers go.
0: Yeah, no, I know, I know Greg Knuckles. I don't really know the others, but I will definitely be looking, looking into them. Um, favorite sure. icons or role models in in your industry? Yeah, so I guess
1: different people for different things. I think I look up to brad schoenfeld in the sense that he's been doing the damn thing for 20-30 years now and that's longevity yeah in cornish that really a longer channel uh, that indeed and then i think eric halms in terms of being a good science communicator and generally being relatively upstanding i think uh, james Steele and paul swinton as far as understanding of methods like i think that many sports scientists lack an understanding of methodology or critical appraisal of studies to the point that it's hurting their study design and study interpretation. So I think those would probably be the three main ones. Um, but in general, I think there's plenty of pretty shady people in the industry, and there's plenty of yeah. pretty hard people in the industry that I do look up to. Very
0: yeah. rapidly, like Great right Knuckles and who have you. Yeah, no, it's, it's very diverse, the the fitness industry, and and I like how you... Uh, appear to be cutting through a lot of the the the, the bullshit for lack of a better term for sure who would you recommend reaching out to and to have on this podcast and can you put me in touch with them
1: yeah so i could put you in touch with uh, i think one good person to have on would be eric helms in general he's a very good science communicator i think he's also relatively involved with the space so i'd say eric helms is one of the
0: main ones um yeah But yeah, I could shoot Eric a message and see if he's interested. That would be awesome. Thank you so much. And then do you have any closing thoughts, any parting words of wisdom um, for people that are looking to embark on their own journeys for for muscle growth or hypertrophy?
1: Yeah, don't be too concerned with getting everything right from the get-go. Just get going, keep learning, make small changes, and over time you'll get to the right spot. Doesn't need to be perfect from the get-go and ultimately it'll be a long journey and enjoyment yeah. and fulfillment within that journey should come before needing to optimize everything otherwise you won't be sticking to it for any length of time
0: absolutely that, that's some great advice so what you mentioned there about it, it's going to take a long time and fitness is hopefully for life and it's a very much a long-term thing don't try and do everything all at once because you will get overwhelmed and there's a lot of nonsense out there so just do you do your best and that's pretty much a draft. Exactly. You crushed it. <laughs> well, thank you so, so, so much for your time. I really, really appreciate you coming onto the podcast and uh, huge congrats on your PhD, Dr. Milo Wolf. Thank you once again. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Goodbye, Gains Gurus. Thank you for listening and see you on the next episode of TMGP.